Audiobooks is pleased to present Metropolitan Callistos of Dioclea on the subject of the mystical theology of the Eastern Church Fathers. This is chapter 3 of 10, titled Saint Macarius of Egypt, The Perception of the Heart. I come now to my third talk about mystical theology. Last time we were looking at Evagrius of Pontus and we considered how he articulates the spiritual way into three levels. The active life, the contemplation of nature, and then the vision of God. Now, tonight I would like to look at Evagrius's contemporary. I would like to look at the homilies which exist under the name of Macarius. These homilies traditionally have been attributed to Saint Macarius of Egypt, who was a Coptic monk living at Scetis, not far from Nitria. He died about 390 in great old age. Almost certainly, Evagrius knew him personally. But it seems that the homilies passing under the name of Macarius were not, in fact, by Macarius of Egypt. Their background is not Egyptian, it is Syrian. They are written in Greek, but they presuppose a Syriac background. Now, the name Macarius is quite frequent, so the author may indeed be someone who was called Macarius, but we can't be sure who this other Macarius was. All we can say is these homilies appear to date from around 380, that's about the same time as Evagrius was living in Nitria, but we can't be sure exactly who wrote the homilies. If he was called Macarius, we don't really know more about him than that. These homilies have certain similarities with an ascetic movement in Syria, which spread all around the Mediterranean in the late 4th and early 5th century, called Messalianism. And the Messalians were a somewhat extreme ascetic sect, and they were in many places condemned. Now, the homilies of Macarius emerge from the same kind of background as the Messalian movement emerges from. And there are certainly elements in common between them. However, there is no good reason to regard the homilies of Macarius as in any way heretical. 
the things that they share with the Messalians are not controversial. And on certain specific points where the Messalians were condemned, the Macarian homilies disagree directly with them. So even though many Western scholars have tended to discount the homilies of Macarius, we Orthodox may continue to regard them as a primary spiritual text. They are marked by warmth and joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit. In monasteries they are often given as reading to the novices to cheer them up. It is interesting that in the 18th century John Wesley the founder of Methodism, was a great admirer of the Macarian homilies. And in his Christian library, the first volume that he included was an edition of Macarius. Now, when we look at the Macarian homilies, they appear to be very different in character from Evagrius. Evagrius is systematic, divides the Christian life into different stages. The Macarian homilies seem to be unmethodical. There are, in fact, stages to be distinguished, but they are not marked out with the clarity of Evagrius. The background of Evagrius is Platonist, philosophical. He is an originist. Macarius is much more biblical, more Christocentric. He has much more to say about the Holy Spirit, whom Evagrius doesn't mention very often. Evagrius emphasizes the place of the noose, the intellect. Macarius, by contrast, speaks about the heart. Here we must be careful, because when Evagrius speaks of the noose, the spiritual intellect, he does not mean, as we noted last time, primarily the reasoning brain. He means the intuitive faculty that we all possess, if we would but realize it, for direct vision of spiritual truth, inner sight. And equally, when the Macarian homilies speak about the heart, they do not mean primarily or exclusively the emotions and affections as we tend to do in the modern West when we speak of the heart. They mean, and we'll say more about this in a moment, the spiritual center of the total human person. The place where there is warfare between good and evil thought the place of divine indwelling. So actually, 
the contrast between Evagrius's intellect and Macarius's heart is not so great as would appear at first. They overlap. And indeed, Macarius says the intellect is in the heart. Nevertheless, there is a difference of emphasis here between the two. Evagrius, as we saw last time, teaches image-free prayer, apophatic prayer. We do not find this kind of teaching in Macarius. His writing is full of abundant imagery. We could say he represents cataphatic prayer. There's nothing in it Macarius about the laying aside of thoughts. And while Macarius does not mean by the heart simply the emotions and the feelings, he does in fact use much more language drawn from the feelings than does Evagrius. Evagrius talks about noesis, noetic understanding. He talks about gnosis, knowledge. Whereas Macarius talks about aesthesis, perception. And another of his favorite words is pleurophoria, which means a feeling of assurance in God. Evagrius has little to say about the body and its place in the spiritual life. Words we quoted last time were, approach him who is not material in a non-material way. However, if Agnes does mention the gift of tears, which he considers quite important, and that, of course, is bodily. But in Macarius, we could say there is a great deal more about the body than in Evagrius. He speaks about the bodily resurrection of the last day and the physical transfiguration that we shall undergo at that time. Yet though there are contrasts in this way between them, we shouldn't exaggerate the difference. Both Evagrius and Macarius are light mystics, solar mystics, not nocturnal mystics. They both of them speak about the vision of light and they don't make much or any reference to God as dark. It also has to be said that both Evagrius and Macarius don't have very much to say about the institutional church. They don't make very many references to the sacraments, to baptism and the Eucharist. But I'm not wishing to suggest that either of them is heretical in this regard. So, they are different, they are contrasting, but they are not contradicting one another.
Let's turn now to look a little more closely at what we find in the homilies of Macarius. First of all, as I said, Macarius emphasizes the place of the heart, which he sees as the center of the human person. Evagrius uses the word heart occasionally, but without attributing special meaning to it. If you get out a concordance to Holy Scripture, and a good concordance is worth a whole shelf full of commentaries, and look up the word heart, you will find that for the most part in the Bible, it doesn't mean emotions and feelings. The heart means the center of the total person. In the biblical usage, we think with our heart. We make moral decisions with our heart. The heart is a battlefield. Evil thoughts come from the heart, as Christ says. But the heart is also the place where Christ and the Holy Spirit dwell. And this is emphasized by Paul in Romans 8 and elsewhere. That the Holy Spirit cries out within our heart. So the heart marks the center of the total person. It's open below to what today we would call the unconscious. The Greek fathers may not have used that phrase, but they certainly have an equivalent to the modern psychological notion of the unconscious. And the heart is equally open above to the abyss of divine grace. Let me then read to you a few passages from Macarius about the heart. And this will give you some idea of the way he speaks and writes. The heart, he says, Armide 15, governs and reigns over the whole bodily organism. And when grace possesses the pasturages of the heart, it rules over all the members and the thoughts. For there in the heart is the mind or intellect, the noose, and all the thoughts of the soul and its expectations. And in this way, grace penetrates also to all the members of the body. For Macarius, then, heart means, first, the physical organ in our chest. He certainly does not understand it merely in a metaphorical sense. But the heart is also the spiritual center. So he sees the heart as the central element in our personhood. 
It rules over the whole bodily organism, so it's the physical center of the person, but it's also the place where you have the intellect, think with your heart, all the thoughts of the soul are there. So also the heart is the place of encounter between the human person and God because the heart is the place where grace dwells. He speaks of grace possessing the pasturages of the heart and he says that through the heart grace passes also to the body. There isn't a body-soul contrast in Macarius. He has a holistic view of the person, a unified whole. And equally, there isn't a head-heart contrast in Macarius because the intellect and the soul are in the heart. Notice the phrase, the pasturages of the heart. We today think of the heart as a pump. But in the ancient world, the circulation of the blood was very little, if at all, understood. And for patristic writers, the heart is not primarily a pump. It is a vessel a container and within the heart there is empty space within the heart there is wide open prairies once I went to uh, Edmonton in Canada and I traveled outside the city and I saw the flat open prairies spreading countless miles round a great sense of flat, open space. Now, the heart is a bit like that. When you enter the heart, it proves vast, spacious. It is a place of freedom. And this is all in the mind of Macarius when he talks about the pasturages of the heart. Let's read on a little more. Within the heart are unfathomable depths. The heart, you see, includes the unconscious. We do not fully understand what lies within the heart. Depths that we have not yet penetrated. Within the heart are unfathomable depths. There are reception rooms and bedchambers in it, doors and porches, and many offices and passages. In it is the workshop of righteousness and the workshop of wickedness. In it is death, in it is life. The heart then is the moral center where good and evil meet, where they engage in battle. But more fundamentally, the heart is the place of divine indwelling. So Macarius writes, The heart is Christ's palace. 
There Christ the King comes and to take his rest with the angels and the spirits of the saints. And he dwells there, walking within it and placing his kingdom there. The heart is the place of divine indwelling. It is in the heart that we encounter Christ in the Holy Spirit. It is in the heart that we experience ourselves as created in the divine image. The heart could be thought of as a mirror in which God is reflected. Here again, let us listen to Macarius. This is a very characteristic passage full of the vivid imagery in which he rejoices. The heart is but a small vessel, and yet dragons and lions are there, and there poisonous creatures, and all the treasures of wickedness. Rough, uneven paths are there, and gaping chasms. The unconscious again. There likewise is God, there are the angels, there life and the kingdom, there light and the apostles, the heavenly cities and the treasures of grace. All things are there. So the heart, as you see, for Macarius is all embracing. It includes body, soul and spirit taken together as an undivided unity and it is the place where Christ and the Holy Spirit are to be found that then is one dominant theme in Macarius and when we read texts from later fathers we should and they refer to the heart we should bear in mind that they are probably using the heart in this comprehensive sense embracing the entirety of our personhood hey everybody it's Tarzan Bonanno just hopping in to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the OLTV podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, press the follow button and the notification button so you are properly notified of when each episode comes out. On top of that, if you want to get more involved, we have questions and polls on the Spotify version of the podcast. This way, we can hear what you guys are thinking about each episode. And if you have any suggestions, we can move it through in further and newer episodes. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. Now, as I said, this idea of the heart involves a holistic, unified view of human personhood. And so we are not surprised to find in the Macarian homilies much emphasis upon the place of the body. 
Macarius has uh, developed theology of the body. Adam and Eve, he teaches, before the fall, possessed bodily glory. They were clothed in light, divine light. That was why, before the fall, they didn't realize that they were naked. When they fall into sin, then this glory is taken away from them. And they see themselves as naked, and they make themselves clothing out of fig leaves and God says the fig leaves are too harsh and abrasive and he gives them clothing out of skins. Moses, descending from Mount Sinai, also displays this glory. We are told that when he came down from the mountain, his face shone so brightly that the people of Israel could not endure the light and he had to cover his face with a veil. That's in Exodus 34, but Macarius refers to it as well. Then this divine light is revealed most notably at the transfiguration of Christ on Mount Tabor. The transfiguration is certainly an important moment for the homilies of Macarius. On Mount Tabor, the disciples see the divine glory clothing the person of Christ in a visible form, bodily glory. But what happened to Christ at the Transfiguration will happen to all the righteous at the final resurrection. This is a master theme in Macarius. In this way, the transfiguration is an eschatological event. As St. Basil says, it is the proemion, the beginning, the overture of the glorious second coming of Christ. That is the perspective equally of Macarius. He says that the saints at this time have only an inward glory. But at the last day when they rise from the dead, the glory that they have hidden within their souls at the present moment will come out and clothe their bodies and will be visible to the physical eye. What the soul now has treasured up within her, says Macarius, will be revealed at the last day and displayed outwardly. At the day of resurrection, the glory of the Holy Spirit comes out from within, decking and covering the bodies of the saints. This glory 
they had before, but it was hidden within their souls. So we can see there how for Macarius the body is very much involved in the disclosure of divine light. Christ's glory is a bodily glory and the disciples see that on Mount Tabor. And the glory of the saints will be an outward bodily glory at the last day as it was before the fall with Adam and Eve, as it was with Moses when he came down from the mountain. We might add, developing what we find in Macarius, that in the lives of the saints, even during their present life here on earth, there are moments when the glory that is within their souls is visible outwardly as a physical and bodily glory most notable instance very familiar uh, to Orthodox Christians and many others is the bodily transfiguration of St. Seraphim of Sarov when he was talking in the forest with his disciple Nicholas Motovilo. That's a wonderful passage. I remember when I first read it before I become Orthodox I was overwhelmed with tears. I couldn't stop weeping. I'm not a person who weeps easily. I was so moved by that account of suddenly Motovilov sees his friend St. Seraphim. Instead of St. Seraphim's face, it's like looking at the disk of the sun. And yet, Motovilo can just make out the eyes and the lips of St. Seraphim and can still hear him talking. So, in this way, in the lives of the saints, and there are many other such examples of bodily transfiguration in their lives, in this way, the final glory of the last day can be anticipated. The last times, the age to come, has already begun. It breaks through into our present age. And this we see in the lives of the saints. Macarius also likes to speak about fire, God as fire. And clearly that is very similar to the idea of God as light. Sometimes Macarius emphasizes the ecstatic nature of prayer. That the soul when praying suddenly becomes oblivious to its surroundings, passes into rapture, is overcome with forgetfulness, is ravished into the unfathomable deep of the other world. We could also say that there are ecstatic moments in the teaching of Evagrius. 
when Evagrius is speaking about pure prayer, when he's speaking about the situation where we are no longer conscious of ourselves but only of Christ at the highest level of the contemplation of God, Evagrius also envisages that we become unconscious of our surroundings. In a text that John Cassian quotes and he attributes to Antony of Egypt, he says, a monk is not really praying if he is conscious of himself and of the fact that he is praying. So in Evagrius's teaching, as in that of Macarius, the experience of God can be so overwhelming that we are no longer conscious of ourselves. We are only conscious of God. But we are not to imagine that even in the lives of the saints, this happens very often. Now, at the end of my talk on Evagrius, I raised the question, how? How are we to enter into this experience of imageless prayer? Evagrius tells us to lay aside all thoughts, all mental pictures, all intellectual concepts, all discursive thinking, and simply to enter into pure prayer. But Evagrius doesn't tell us how to do this. Now, Macarius provides us with a vital hint. Even though he does not speak about imageless prayer, yet he does suggest a way in which somebody might enter into this kind of imageless prayer if they were to combine the teaching of Macarius with that of Evagrius. Macarius says this, always build up your soul spiritually and always speak out against the sin that dwells within you since you have free will, and always pray to God. When you pray, what are you to say? Say, I beseech you, I beseech you, O Lord. Say these same words alike when walking and when eating and drinking and never cease doing this. So here Macarius recommends a very simple form of prayer, repeating a single short phrase over and over again. And the phrase he gives us is, I beseech you, I beseech you, O Lord. If we turn to a contemporary text from late 4th and 5th century Egypt, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, 
we can find many other examples of this way of praying. In early monasticism, the fathers of the desert were deeply influenced, and of this I've already spoken, by the text of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. They did not see prayer as an occasional activity. They saw it as a dimension that should enter into the whole of our life. Now, in the 4th century desert, the divine office was quite simple. It consisted usually just of reciting psalms. All the elaborate hymnography that we have now in Byzantine monasticism did not yet exist in this period. The monks were expected to work with their hands, to be self-support. That has been a dominant principle from the very beginnings of Christian monasticism. Monasteries should not appeal for funds to other people. The monks should be self-supporting and indeed should have enough to give to others to support and help the poor and the homeless and the sick. So the early Christian monks worked with their hands. And they usually did very simple, repetitive work, like plating ropes or making baskets. How were they to occupy their minds while performing this simple, repetitive work? They were to pray, yes, but how? And the chief way that they used in the 4th century desert was to repeat passages from scripture particularly from the Psalms often instead of repeating a whole passage they would just repeat one single verse one single phrase over and over again it might be the opening of Psalm 51 alias 50 have mercy upon me O God after thy great goodness according to the multitude of thy mercies do away with, with mine offences one monk used to repeat over and over again he'd been guilty of a particularly terrible sin in his youth as man I have sinned as God forgive And Macarius is recommending the same. The use of the short phrase, I beseech you, I beseech you, O God. This is known as monologic prayer. Prayer of a single logos. Not necessarily just of one word, but prayer of a single phrase. Now, in the 4th century desert, we find a great variety of such phrases suitable for frequent repetition, and in this way the monks would hope to maintain the continual memory of God, unceasing prayer.
Now the practice of monologic prayer actually provides us with the source and origin of a prayer so very well known in the Christian East, the Jesus prayer. In 4th century Egypt, among the phrases for frequent repetition were sometimes phrases containing the holy name of Jesus. But the holy name enjoys no special prominence, still less it does not have any monopoly. There is variety, and many of the phrases such as that recommended by Macarius do not contain the name of Jesus. But if we move on to the 5th century, we find the beginnings of a Jesus-centered spirituality. We find this particularly in one author, St. Diatokos of Photiki, a bishop in northern Greece who was present at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 and whose writings can be found in the first volume of the English Philokalia. Diatokos of Photiki was clearly familiar both with the writings of Evagrius and with the Macarian homilies, and he combines the two together. He brings together the systematic approach of Evagrius and the warmth and freedom of Macarius. In particular, he recommends the use of monologic prayer, of a short formula of prayer. And the short formula that he envisages begins with the two words, Kyrie Isu, O Lord Jesus. He may have had in mind other words after those two, but if so, he doesn't tell us what they were. And on a number of occasions in his writing, Diatticus underlines the value of invoking the Lord Jesus, continuous invocation or memory of Jesus. And he sees this as a way of entry into the imageless prayer of which Evagrius speaks. So where Evagrius does not offer us any practical method for achieving imageless prayer, the Adicus does. We are to do what Macarius recommends, to use a short formula and to use it over and over again. Here is the way the Adicus speaks about this. When we have blocked all its outlets by means of the remembrance of God. The intellect requires of us imperatively some task which will satisfy its need for activity. For the complete fulfillment of its purpose, we should give it nothing 
but the prayer Lord Jesus. Let the intellect continually concentrate on these words within its inner shrine with such intensity that it is not turned aside to any mental images. The Atticus is starting here from the idea that our mind cannot rest idle. If we just say to ourselves, be still, think about nothing, merely rest in God, what is likely to happen to us? We will find ourselves subject to an endless sequence of thoughts and images. Not necessarily bad thoughts and images, but thoughts and images that have nothing to do with the task of prayer on which we want to be engaged. Simply to sit and do nothing is not a way of entering into the immediate union with God that we desire. We need to give our ever-active mind some kind of activity. We can't turn off the inner television set simply by an effort of will. The distracting thoughts go on. Bishop Theophan the Recluse calls them like buzzing flies on a summer's evening. Moving outside the Christian tradition, the Hindu Ramakrishna says that our distracting thoughts are like monkeys jumping capriciously from branch to branch. What are we to do about these buzzing flies, these capricious monkeys? Well, says Diadocus, give to your ever active mind a very simple task. Give to it the prayer, Lord Jesus, the Jesus prayer. And this will act as an anchor, as a center to which you can continually return. This will satisfy your restless intellect's need for activity. And through faithful repetition of the Jesus prayer, Every time your mind goes astray, through bringing it back again into the words of prayer, into the simple invocation of the Lord Jesus. In this way, you may hope to enter into the imageless prayer of which Evagris is speaking. So for the Atticus, the Jesus prayer is a prayer in words. But because the words are extremely simple, and because they are constantly repeated, the Jesus prayer is a way into silence. So here we see, drawing on a hint in Macarius, the suggestion of repeating the same short phrase, how we can enter into the imageless prayer of which Evangelist and Diadocus deepens this in a wonderful way by choosing as the phrase for frequent repetition a phrase involving the holy name of Jesus, a name that is full of grace and power. 
So here we see combining Macarius and Evagrius and then looking on to the Atticus, the emergence of the invocation of the Holy Name. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me as a focus for our ever-active intellect, as a way of entry into pure prayer. Thank you for listening to this talk from Callistos Ware. New lectures will be released every Thursday. If you'd like to see more content, consider being a subscriber on Spotify or at our Locals page. The link for that is in the description below. God bless.